Hi. <laughs> Take two. These are Conversations with Brian Solomon. I'm Brian Solomon, and I'm, today I'm here with Chris Gus and Marshall Beecher, and we are going to talk about railroad photography, uh, technique, equipment, gear, various stuff you can do, and we're going to touch upon drones. But I figure we'll start off with, we'll start on the ground. So, Chris, how are you doing? Good. How are you today? Pretty good. And Marshall? I am well. Hello. Good day. So, let's see. Marshall, where'd you start in photography? Tell me about how you got into it and what'd you start with for uh, equipment and things like that? Well, oddly enough, when I kind of got into photography, it was really through the video side of things. Um, I don't know if that's going to be relevant to the conversation. No, no, that's good. That's okay. good. That's a different way of taking it. So. Um, I was about about 10 years old and a great uncle of ours gave me a, uh, well, back then it was a VHS compact uh, camcorder and uh, got a relatively crude tripod and started doing videoing and tried to be serious and steady about it and everything like that and we found out like at that time the tripod wasn't the thing to have and shooting more handheld kind of spur of the moment things at the time and uh over time uh you know upgraded gear got a better understanding of how to use the gear um and just kind of went from there you know i mean now i'm to the point where it's graduated into you know Know, high high definition video and using a good tripod and having a better eye for composition and all the things that photography has taught me that I've been able to use in that realm as well. What was your learning curve like? I mean, how long did it take before you felt that you're getting stuff that you really liked? Wow, I, I'm glad I started when I did because I felt it did take a good amount of time. You know, I so mean, you started at age ten. Yeah, so I mean, that, that was pretty young. You know, I mean, the the footage and some of the stuff I have is pretty priceless, but you know, as far as the means that it was done was a little bit crude, but, you know, probably a good five, six years, you know, being your own worst critic. Um, at the time, railroad video was kind of new. So once that became a, an accepted public means of, of showing railroad entertainment, that kind of helped force your eye and give you a, a different you know perspective maybe that you didn't have now, then. In case you, you don't know, Marshall's actually one of the most accomplished railroad videographers that I've ever seen. You did a, it was a timed sequence I believe it was on the nickel plate in Indiana of a train with about a 600 mil lens coming out of the setting sun and it's time lapse and you can actually see the sun setting over the top of the train. Yeah, I was on the CSX actually. Yeah, okay. You know, yeah. Sorry. Oh, no, it's okay. major faux pas. <laughs> B&O people offended everyone. <laughs> but anyway, it was really, really a cool oh, thank sequence. You. I, thank you. I saw that at one of your Beecher Fests yeah. about six years ago. Yeah, it was yeah. five, six years ago. It sticks in my mind. It's one of two sequences I remember from the whole show. Okay. So yeah, that's cool. Very well done. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, and that, and that kind of shows you what that kind of media does for action work with a train. I mean, that just to see the movement of a train, to see nature doing its thing, sun setting, clouds moving, um, all the things necessarily in a still photo that maybe, you know, aren't as apparent maybe. You get that And motion. you do still photography as well, though. I do. I do. Um, I would say about the mid-90s, I kind of branched out more into photography. Um, I went to college then, um, took several photography courses then, um, did a lot of in high school as well. But really, when I got into college is when I kind of got a little more serious with my photography gear, too. So up until that point, it was very much largely video. But uh, yeah, that's... Uh, what do you shoot for still cameras these days? Um, I'm a Canon user. Okay. Um, I got a 40D and then I got a 5D Mark III. Um, typically, you know, pretty much a still shooter with that stuff. Even though the 5D Mark III does video, I've never really, I've never really used it too much for for that kind of thing. There's there's certain situations where where that gear is, lends itself a little better than the HD video gear that I have. But uh, t 
typically the, the photo stuff is for photos and my video stuff is for videos. That's cool. And Chris, how'd you get into it? How'd you start? What'd you start with? Uh, basically, when I was um, growing up, my parents had a Pentax <laughs> camera similar to what you have on the desk over there, just this regular SLR with film and all that. Um, so uh, back at the time, I mean, I, again, no one really starts serious in this hobby unless you have, you know, parents that are rail fans and things like that. Um, so, you know, I started with a SLR Pentex camera and uh, print film because that's what we shot for family excursions and uh, vacations and holidays and all that. So uh, most of my earliest stuff is actually on uh, print film. And my aunt, uh, I remember, uh, I stayed with her once. In the, I grew up in St. Louis, so she lived on the south side of St. Louis and spent the weekend with her once. And she had a disc camera, remember the disc film? I had Kodak disc, yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, I remember going down to the old uh, Mopac Ewing Avenue diesel shops there in St. Louis and uh, taking photographs all around the diesel shop on a disc camera and stuff. I don't even know where those images are today. Then you got them back, and then you're like, why is this so grainy? <laughs> <laughs> Serious grain on the disc camera. Oh, yes, definitely. So, But, yeah, it was, it was you know just pretty much anything I can get my hands on, uh, the family camera or a relative's camera. And when did you switch to Chrome? Fly uh, film. I switched to Chrome... There used to be a Sunday group, and I don't even know if they still hang out or not, in Kirkwood, Missouri, at the top of the hill on the old Missouri Pacific line between St. Louis and Kansas City. And every Sunday afternoon and evening, there'd be a bunch of people that would kind of get together and congregate and watch the trains, you know, grind up the hill in both directions. And uh, brought my camera down there with print film, and they're like, oh, you really should be shooting Kodachrome 64. And I'm like, what's that? You know, and I really had to do some research to figure out what it was. And, uh, you know, largely self-taught. I didn't have the benefit of taking photography classes like Marshall and stuff. I would, you know... Uh, Someone gave me the 250 F8, and, you know, it didn't matter if it was a sunny day or cloudy day, I shot 250 F8, and, you know, much to my chagrin now that's a lot of those images are unusable now and uh, are too dark and things like that. So um, it wasn't probably until I got into college where I uh, had some really good uh, mentors and stuff who were rail fans and were teaching me how to use the equipment better, basically. And roughly how long did it take before you felt that you were really getting good quality stuff? I would say after I got out of college, I uh, – uh, got an apartment with a friend of mine called James Mitchell. He lives out east, and uh, he was in Kansas City at the time. And uh, he was pretty much, you know, a high-end glass, tripod, go to chrome, you know, really did everything right, worked with the light really well. And when you like say high-end glass, you mean fast, fast prime fast lenses. Fast 2.8 lenses and stuff yeah. like that, yes. So, uh, you know, things would cost, you know, 1000 to $2,000 for the lens, basically. And, and I kind of got on that bandwagon early on and spent all my money on the lenses I could, the L lenses and the Nikon version uh, of the L lenses and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I was taught basically that the lens makes the image back then and uh, spend as much as you can on that and then just get a body that's adequate, basically, you know, that, that suits your needs, basically. And I think that's very much still true, is that the lens is the most important part of the whole system. Yeah, I'd say the, the sensor comes into play now, too. Uh, you know, there's still this thing about, uh, you know, the, the, the crop sensors versus full frame as being one being superior to the other. I actually have one of each, and I think they both have their pros and cons. Um, but yeah, you know, the, the quality of the sensor and stuff for the low light capabilities, um, you know, it seems like 12 to 16 megapixel, uh, sensor seems to be the best for low light photography and videography and stuff. And you've got, you know, sensors are up close to 50 megapixels now, which are more for, you know, daylight landscape photography and stuff. They, again, you can buy your, just like you bought your lenses for a specific use. I think you can buy your sensors, you know, and what camera is, uh, around them for a particular use these days. And like Marshall, you're also Canon. Yes. From so, um, yeah, when I graduated college, uh, you know, uh, got a new, you know, new job and, you know, money to spend. And I went to the store and Canon was on sale and Nikon wasn't. So, I mean, I have nothing ill will against Nikon. It's just what I uh, ended up purchasing at the time. So, uh, 
and just kind of stuck with it. You know, once you've spent all the money and invested in that much money for lenses and stuff. In case you wonder what that thunderclap was, our sound engineer just kicked the table so, just to put that was a little bit of context. Yeah. It keeps it interesting. It does. <laughs> Saves us having to edit out the clap as well. So, And that's him laughing over there. Um, yeah, okay. So we've got two Canon users, which is good. Um, I used to use Canon for about about eight years. I used Canon primarily. And then I, I switched to, to Fuji and to Panasonic for my digital stuff. And I've gone back to using Nikon for film. So I, people are kind of usually shocked. But as you, <laughs> you may have heard a click earlier on when, when Marshall was, I actually still yeah. still shoot film occasionally. Uh, I still shoot black and white, actually these days more than I shoot slides. But I'm largely digital. Yeah. So, um, I've got a mirrorless camera that I've used for family uh, you know, trips and stuff like that because it's more compact than the larger Canon bodies. And I've actually ended up doing more video track side because it's sitting at home if we're not doing a family trip or something like that. So uh, Sony's come a really, you know, quite a long way in their technology of their sensors and their autofocus systems and stuff like that. And I'm thinking at some point my, my Canons might actually uh, meet the end of the line and I might end up going with the Sony uh, mirrorless, uh, you know, uh, full frame body, I guess, uh, at some point down the road. So I'm not, I'm not locked into Canon by any means. If there's something out there that'll do a better job, you know, I think the best tool, you know, Obviously, the best tool is the one in your hand, and then obviously just to find the one that suits your photographic uh, interests is uh, secondary. And then, um, again, I'm Brian Solomon. These are Conversations with Brian Solomon. We podcast for Trains Magazine. We're in the offices of Trains Magazine in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and today I'm speaking with Chris Gus and Marshall Peacher, and we're talking about railroad photography, equipment, photographic technique. And the next topic I think you're both qualified to discuss, and uh, Chris and I have discussed this in the past, are drones. In other words, uh, you know, airborne cameras, if you like, <laughs> quadcopters and whatnot. And you both do drone photography. Yes. And yeah. um, uh, Chris has spoken about this before, so I'll, I'll let Marshall take his take on it, and then you guys can argue about it and have a fist <laughs> fight here on which one's the best kind. Or maybe you both use the same drone. I don't know. So, Marshall, go ahead. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's just one of those extra tools to put in the toolbox that really expands your viewpoint of things. Um, you know, the, the quote, elevation is everything, sticks in my mind. And... Uh, when you can get something to to do alternate angles and take you places that you can't climb to or walk to or i mean that's just unbeatable i mean uh the, the only other thing you could maybe do is you know possibly get into having a zoom lens rather than just a fixed focal length lens on it but um by and large it's a great it's a great tool to have to to expand your photographic repertoire and um look at unique viewpoints and things like that that you normally weren't open to um, you know, you're not going to find a 150 foot step ladder anywhere to climb up on with your camera and take your picture with. Like, do you have any difficulty using the drone? Have you had any challenges with it? <laughs> I'd say the biggest thing is, you know, the no fly, all the rules that have come up with the softwares and the GPS and things like that, where there's places you can't fly, places you're not allowed to fly. Um, and is that, I remember Chris was saying that a lot of that's actually built into the drone now. Right. And that's updates. You know, the more you can update the software, they're, they're pushing, you know, software to update to update that type of database and, so, yeah, the more it seems you update things, the, the more at times they can be more restrictive. But, uh, you know, that's just the way it is, obviously. Uh, unfortunately, other people kind of ruin it for everybody. And, uh, you know, they've people had don't to... Don't play by the rules. Exactly. They've had to impose all these restrictions. So sounds like there's some things on the horizon that are going to help that, though. So that's that's actually a positive uh, thing for sure. But uh, but that's about the one thing. But other than that, you know, when you're, when you're out somewhere and can, can fly out and and get something different or something new, a new viewpoint, it's it's amazing. It's, it's a lot of fun. And, Chris, I know we did a whole detailed podcast a while back on, on your use of the drone. Um, 
any other input on that? Any changes in, in your drone applications? Or? Uh, I'm currently using the the Mavic 2. Uh, Marshall and I both had the, the Phantom 4 Pro, and then I've uh, upgraded to uh, the Mavic 2 Pro now. And uh, it's a little smaller form factor and allows me to travel with it uh, a little more easily and all that. Uh, I wasn't able to, I, 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 I didn't have to sacrifice quality in terms of the sensor or the battery life and things like that with it and got a smaller form factor. Um, since I've acquired that, actually, um, you get on the internet and there's all these chat lists and stuff like that, and I realized that the uh, the Mavic 2 Pro and the Mavic 2 Zoom are essentially the same uh, drones with the exception of the gimbal and the camera attached to it. And the gimbal is? Uh, the gimbal is uh, kind of like a steady cam, so it allows you to, uh, you know, whether or not you're using it on the ground or up in the air and stuff like that, it actually stabilizes the camera, so it keeps the, the camera at a level horizon regardless of the drone's movement with wind or movement of the, of the craft and stuff like that. It'll keep it always at a level um, plane, basically, up in the up in the sky. Um, so anyway, from uh, from that point, uh, fr from one of these forums, I actually figured out that I actually can uh, swap out the gimbal and I can actually go and, and purchase the zoom lens online, which I did. So now, uh, like as Marshall alluded to, uh, I can go from 24 to 48 millimeters now, which doesn't seem like a lot, but, you know, to get a more or less a 50 millimeter vantage point uh, really opens up a lot of uh, opportunities and stuff that you don't have because most of the earlier drones were anywhere from 20 to 28 millimeters, which is pretty wide angle, basically. You have to get kind of up close and personal. And they're designed for more for landscape and people, you know, flying out and just kind of, you know, getting a lay of the land and stuff. But if we're more focused on our subject matter in railroads, you don't really need that large uh, viewpoint if you don't, you know, in certain applications. And one of the things I remember from when we were out in the field last summer is that the actual setup time for the drone can be very quick. I mean, just up, way gone, picture taken back in not much more time than we've had to discuss it, mm -hmm. you know, really pretty quickly. Yeah, I mean, the, the newer Mavic, I mean, the the moment I put it on the ground, I hit the, the startup button, and then if I grab the controller, it's it'll be pretty much ready probably in 20, 30 seconds. And, you know, the older drones sometimes took, what, a minute or two, I think? To, Easily, yeah. Yeah, so you had to factor that in, obviously, if you're doing a lot of, um, you know, last-minute photography or the train's getting close and you haven't, yeah, depending on your location, you can. It it takes some pre-planning a lot of times. We really kind of need to know where the train is, what's going on, and. Well, right, I guess that, that leads us into the next topic. Um, we'll start with Marshall. What what excites you today? What what do you like to photograph? Railroads or locations? I mean, give us some examples of what you find is really cool. What's the best topics? In railroading, I don't know. Um, you know, with with the push of PTC and everything, I think old signal systems, um, are what kind of grabs my attention. Um. The transition that's occurring there with that. Um, Again, for, for those who aren't up to the speed, PTC, positive train control, it's it's what's going in, it's replacing a lot of the traditional signaling with more advanced signaling. And, and coincident or as part of that, a lot of railroads are swapping out their historic hardware, some of which dates back to the steam era, with modern signal heads and modern signaling equipment, which changes the look of the railroad. Right. Um, I mean, that's kind of that's kind of been a big focus. You know, uh, Living in the Chicagoland area, there's been a lot of that transition has been happening here in the last, you know, five, ten years. Um, you know, being that I work for a railroad also, it's nice to have insight on certain things that are happening and when they're going to happen. And and that part of it actually helps make it a little more exciting because instead of just going out somewhere and waiting for something to happen, you can find yourself at a location and be ready to get a shot and get a shot you want without really investing a lot of time, which... You know, as a family man and so forth, it's nice to have that 
that option so you're not really spending necessarily a whole day to get a shot that you really want to get. Yeah, and I know Chris is kind of a master of that, of using the technology to to target what you want to photograph and be in place, take the picture, and then move immediately on to the next thing without huge amounts of unnecessary waiting. Yeah, when you're a family man, I mean, uh, you know, time is such a premium. You might have a week or two of, away from your family, you know, in a calendar year sometimes or less, and you have to make the most of it. So if you can uh, increase your yield by the use of technology, you know, internet chat lists or uh, other software out there that's available um, that allows you to increase your yield per day and, you know, um, quality over quantity, you know, and I used to be quantity over quality, you know, a long time ago and stuff, but now it's better to come home with, you know, 15 or 20 really great shots versus 100, you know, mediocre ones. So a little bit of pre-planning and uh, some research online, Google Maps and Google Earth and stuff like that allows you to really kind of pinpoint, you know, what you want to do and make the most of your time while you're away from your family. And what do you like to photograph, Chris? I mean, given your brother's time and space and what's going on, if you're out taking pictures right now and it wasn't like about to snow and you were in a studio <laughs> in Wisconsin, where, where would you be? What would you be taking a photograph? Well, in the Midwest, it's a, you either want full sun or full rain or snow, basically. Those are your two choices. The, the overcast just doesn't do much for me. So uh, if it's in your backyard, uh, I'd say for interest right now, I mean, the older locomotives, I've always been kind of a locomotive centric person. Um, I was in the locomotives and train operations for the longest time, but now it's kind of gravitated away from that. And some of these technologies uh, have come along like drones and stuff and take up my, my, my free time is only so much. So I have to readjust uh, my priorities basically. Um, but yeah, going out to find the, the, the older U-boats, the Dash 7s, Dash 8s, uh, short lines, uh, you typically find a more welcoming atmosphere on these short lines. You know, they'll give you uh, cab rides at times or tours of things and, you know, um, kind of work with you, things like that that just aren't, aren't possible anymore in class ones for the most part. Yeah. Um, that and um, basically going out and just uh, with the drone now, like Marshall said before, it's just, it opens up so much possibilities. So I try to cater certain trips now that would be more advantageous to where you might have limited access or it'd take you a long time to hike in somewhere, but it'd take you, a, you know, 30 seconds by drone or, you know, an hour by hiking or something like that to get into a spot, get a shot, keep going and stuff like that. So. I look sometimes to take trips now that I can actually uh, maximize the use of drones in harder to reach locations and try to plan out the the adjacent roads or access points where I can go in there and get certain shots, be in and out in a heartbeat basically and move on to the next one stuff and just get some unique images. And that's really what I love about, you know, this hobby is just trying to find the new angles. Just real quick, we're going to wrap this up, but um, you were, Chris was saying he likes, you know, short lines and regionals. I want each one of you to kind of focus for a minute on class ones. What would be your favorite class one to photograph? You live in the Chicago area, so you've got a good choice. Um, pick one. Which 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 would you be your favorite of all the, the, the seven class ones? I'd say right now um, the Norfolk Southern is kind of my interest. Um, the Heritage engines are always you know nice to get. Um, I've always enjoyed the Chicago line that comes in and out of uh, you know out of Chicago. The old, the old New York Central water level. Exactly. Yeah. Um, just always kind of had a fondness for that, and. Uh, so, I mean, basically those are the reasons for, I mean, obviously they've, when it, talking about signals, they, they had a bunch of old signaling systems on their lines that were interesting to shoot and there was obviously no shortage of trains. So um, I would say that they would get my vote. Okay, and Chris, just real quick, favorite favorite class one? I'd say right now into the Chicago area, probably a Canadian National, just because they have, uh, you know, the bucolic setting up in Southern Wisconsin, you know, uh, a lot of great places to photograph. And their locomotive roster is anything from a GP9 to a, brand new tier four GE and 
you know, uh, Bessemer Tunnel Motors, uh, both Grant Trunk locomotives. They just got such a variety of motive power right now. And uh, you can see it all pretty much between Chicago and Fond du Lac from switch engines, end cap switchers up at Fond du Lac to, you know, SD40 or tunnel motors on the locals and all that. And then the big mainline power that comes through sometimes in distributed power mode and conventional. So I think it's got it all. It's got the scenery and it's got the motive power variety for me. So we've got Marshall with Norfolk Southern and Chris with Canadian National. And we're going to wrap this up for now. I'm Brian Solomon. These are Conversations with Brian Solomon. I'm here with Chris Gus and Marshall Beecher, Trains Magazine. And thanks again for listening, and we'll do another one of these soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.